Welcome to Learn With Lowell Show. I'm your host, Lowell. Today we're joined with Tim Smith, famous author, teacher, and historian of the Civil War. In this episode, we discuss Grant, the Civil War, Reconstruction, Lee, and tons more. If you like this type of content, please subscribe. Put out two to three new episodes every week, 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you, everybody, for leaving comments, subscribing, and liking. It all adds up, and it's fun to engage with you all. Let's stay curious learn about Tim, the Civil War, on this episode of Learn With Lowell Show. So uh, about five years ago, I if you asked me about Grant and the Civil War, well, particularly Grant, I would have been like, okay, you know, he did an okay job. And I, I would have just gone on with my day. Like, I was kind of, I had that somewhat of that brainwashing of, he wasn't a good general, all these different things. And then I read Chernow's Grant. I was like, oh, they really turned my my opinion on him. He went from like, you know, being, I guess, uh, somewhat vague. And he's actually, his hometown's not even far from where I grew up. But uh, just from like him as a character, like the fact that the second he got it, uh, was in possession of a slave, he immediately freed when he was like down in his luck and that like represented money to when right. he was a, a general and he's pioneering stuff to even his attempts at reconstruction in a time where like, uh, I think it was jo- Johnson was... Uh, he didn't continue Lincoln's legacy, I'd say, in terms of yeah. wanting to do a good job with Reconstruction. So that's right. that's how I remember just that that shift and to the point where like I'm a big fan of Grant now, and I talk to my wife about it to the point where it kind of irritates her a little bit. But uh, <laughs> I think she uh, nicely listens to me. But I, I am curious for you for a lifelong passion, like you're writing all these books. Uh, where, do you remember when you first fell in love? Like when you first realized this was either Grant or the the topic itself was really something you wanted to dedicate your life to? Well, it's interesting in terms of Grant itself. you got to remember, I grew up in Mississippi, which there are not a lot of Grant fans in Mississippi. Um, um, you know, it, it, it was when I went probably to, and I grew up in the, in the 70s in the, um, you know, the old, old South almost type of still mentality. It, it uh, uh, had not broken out yet into, into some more modern thinking and so on. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was probably when I went to graduate school and a lot of people say, you know, oh, you go to a graduate school and you get brainwashed and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that probably happens sometimes. But um, I like to think in my case, it, it opened me up to 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 new ideas and, and a, a broader mind. Um, and I think I uh, follow the sources, you know, rather than what I want to get out of them or or. Um, what I, I don't go into anything with a pre- preconceived notion or, or something like that. So uh, as I began to study Grant Moore, it began to appear to me that goodness, this guy's pretty good, you know, at what he at what he does. Um, and I actually became a uh, I'll, I'll you know don't deny it. I'm a I'm a Grant fan. Um, I tell groups and so on. I don't mind calling him out when it's necessary. And there are several things, uh, on which it's necessary to call Grant out. Uh, but, uh, overall, I think he's, um, he's by far the best general of the civil war. Um, Robert E. Lee in, included, um, and, a, a fairly good president as well. I'd put him up there with Washington or Lincoln or, or, or someone like that. But, um, in the larger historiography, um, Grant has always had kind of that mentality that you, you grew up with, you know, that he was a butcher um, during the Civil War, that he got all his men killed and he didn't care about, you know, human lives and all that. And that he was a drunk and that he was a failure as a president and all the scandals and, and so on. But there's really been a lot of, of new historical work. Um, that has started to China kind of change the historiography a little bit. And there's been a rehabilitation, actually, of Grant. Um, less so in his military. There's always been 
people that have thought he was a really good general and so on. But really, the rehabilitation is starting to come uh, in terms of politics with um, with his presidency and being, uh, you know, aggressive in terms of civil rights and and um, uh, even on the, the Native American question and, and several things like that. Um, and I think it's it's fortunate. And Chernow's book um, is part of that, of course. Yeah. Is um when so did you have the same thing when I was like you know five years ago when you were before you went into grad school where you thought Grant was you know all those things or was it what was it like in the seventies in terms of the perception of of Grant? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, growing up in Mississippi, he was the enemy. You know, he, he was the he was the bad guy, and uh, we didn't want anything to do with him. And you know, I I grew up in Mississippi. I had numerous ancestors, direct great 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 granddaddies, whatever in the in the Confederate Army, four of them were inside of Vicksburg when Grant captured. Um, well, one was killed, but uh, three inside of Vicksburg. But um, yeah, he, he, you know, growing up in that that type of, of atmosphere, he was he was definitely the enemy, the bad guy. Um, but I like to, to think I've, I've broadened my mind a little bit and, and uh, got a little more level headed view of things now. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing is I learn more and more about. Um, the civil war is it's like there's there's like um kind of like uh similes on both sides so like there's like some generals that are in the union and there's some that are in the confederacy that are very similar and i was mm-hmm. i like literally before this call you were uh talking on johnston and uh i wrote down like is is johnson the confederate version of george uh george mccallan because like they, they seem kind of in, uh, similar in how they make excuses all the time like oh i can't go there like there's i don't have enough reinforcements and stuff so i, right. I think that's yeah. interesting and granted, yeah. like they all come from a similar base, you know, they all have the same foundation, more or less. But I thought right, that's interesting. Yeah. Like it really is brother against brother. Well, it is, um, and you have to remember, all of them were trained at the same military school, the military mm-hmm. academy, in at West Point. Um, and I've gotten into a good bit of this. And this may be going way down into the weeds, farther than you want to go. But um, I have this theory that I'm I'm working on now. And I may do a book about it uh, sometime. I don't know. But the vast majority of Civil War officers are trained at West Point um, that that have a military education. A lot of civilian officers, of course, politicians, but. Um, and, and they get largely the French model uh, from their professors, Sylvanus Thayer, um, uh, Mahan, and, and others, uh, which pattern their teaching after the French uh, military theorist, Jomini. And so you get a lot of this very careful, um, you know, we got to know what we're facing before we get into it, very McClellan-esque and Johnston-esque. Um, secure supply lines, maneuver rather than fighting. Let's let's go around their flank uh, and force them back and capture a town rather than just fighting the army and and fighting it out and getting it over. With, you know, and so the vast majority of officers are like that. McClellan, Rosecrans, uh, Johnston, Sherman, uh, all of the big guys are are very much in that in that vein. And Grant started out like that. Um, he started out very much wanting to please Halleck, Henry Halleck, his, his uh, commander and, and others, um, until he figured out this ain't working, uh, especially and it, the, the change occurs in the Vicksburg campaign. And Grant figures out, I can't do these things by the book, by the Jomini book, the way that, that we were taught, and the way that everybody thinks, you know, secure supply lines and all that. I've got to think outside the box and I've got to think outside of the book a little bit, throw the book away. Uh, and what you start to see is a very 
untraditional type of, of warfare that Grant wages. Um, and there's some debate. The other major military theorist of the time, of the Napoleonic time, is a guy named Karl von Clausewitz. You may have heard of Clausewitz. I don't mm-hmm. know, but you have On Germany war. and Clausewitz. Um, and Grant, over time, drifts more toward Clausewitz and away from Germany. And very few officers in the Civil War figure this out. And it's actually the Clausewitzian way of, of fighting that actually wins the war and 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 settles things um but hardly anybody figures this out um and they don't read Clausewitz because it was not translated in english in 1876 i believe in the 1870s uh so i i humorously say that grant kind of figured this out it's a lot out of common sense grant kind of figured this out on his own and um in a barbara mandrell reference so if you know barbara mandrell or not maybe way too too far back from you but um she had a country song named i was country when country wasn't cool so she was country mm. before country got cool you know and i argue that grant was clausewitzian before clausewitz was cool and he kind of figured this out on on um on his own there so it's uh it's a it's an interesting thing looking at the progression that grant makes and a lot of common sense involved in it that that's actually that's something i've been curious about as well it's like if they all had the same base why did how were they able to diverge so much like in the union especially with grant he was so adaptable where lee i think it it took all up till the end of the war before he started having much more of a macro view of of coordinating different armies right yeah well and one thing he wasn't given the opportunity to do that lee mm. lee was not but that's one of the reasons that it bogged down into just a almost a stalemate for four years that they're both trained at the same place they both have the same philosophies uh everybody knows each other and so they're not neither neither side's getting a, a leg up on the other um simply because they're all you know, running out of the same playbook. It'd be like two football teams working out of the exact same playbook, you know, offense and defense. You're not going to, you're not going to make much progress there until there's a game changer and Grant figures out that, okay, this is how we're going to change the game. And of course he, he ultimately wins the war by doing that. So, um, Sean Monique versus Clausewitz. If Sean Monique's the, if I'm saying the name right, um, I'm terrible with French names. Jean Monique. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) But, uh, if, 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 Joe Monique is the maneuver supply line way of thinking. What's the Clausewitzian way of thinking? Well, it's more hit them and keep on hitting them and keep moving mm. and and uh, uh, basically the annihilating victory. Let's let's go after the victory. The idea kind of is, and you see this a lot in Grant in the in the later stages of the Civil War in the Virginia campaign, for instance. Um, Grant will tell his officers, me commanding the army of the Potomac, you go after Lee's army. I don't care where it goes. You go after it and defeat it. And if you defeat the army, Richmond will fall. Forget about geographic points. Uh, yeah, we want to take the capital. But if you if you kill the army defending the capital, the capital will fall. At the same time, he's telling Sherman in Georgia, you go after Joe Johnston's army. Forget Atlanta. If we get Atlanta, you know, that's kind of part of the ultimate goal. But if you defeat the army defending Atlanta, then Atlanta will will fall. So uh, if you annihilate the enemy's armies, um, then you you uh, you annihilate any defense, and you can take these geographic points, and the the rebellion will will implode. Um, and so that's what he's telling his guys, and that's very different than what we've had for the previous two or three years, where they maneuver and try to take territory and back and forth and, and um, uh, all that kind of stuff, and trying to to you know uh, 
safe casualties, if you will. Halleck, McClellan, very, very, um, uh, uh, it, it's almost like a, a, a dance, you know, around each other, a minuet or something where they, they don't really want to fight each other. Uh, they're just kind of kind of dancing around like two cats, you know, rearing at each other. They never really get into a fight. They just, they just howl at each other, kind of. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, 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 Scipio Africanus in, um, in ancient Rome for people like we're like jumping like 2000 years uh, in the past <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> is uh, when he almost died. I think it was like the Battle of Canae, like his dad died and he, he got away from it. And Grant started out with very humble beginnings in the Mexican-American War. I think he was a supply officer and yeah. Lee was uh, Lee was actually quite significant in that war, I, I believe. Yeah, but then by and then uh, when Scipio went to Spain, he developed a new way of, instead of like, um, he developed, I, I believe he developed a new way of fighting where, uh, like he had like the uh, uh, three lines, like the triple Pisces or something like that. If I, I'm getting, I'm screwing up on the name, but basically he developed a new way of fighting where he would hit people where they wouldn't move. Like he would like pin them and then hit them there. And so I think it's really interesting when he started out with Kane getting kind of beat up, developing a new way of fighting, which is what Grant did as well. And then by the end of it, they used that adapted way of fighting to, in Scipio's uh, version, he was like outside of uh, Carthage and brought him out so he could defeat them in where he had the best advantage. And yeah. in this case with uh, Grant, it's um, he just kept hammering him using you know his logistics brain and everything he had to keep going. And there was actually a really beautiful scene in the Grant documentary where like they had the first battle when they were heading south to the wilderness. And everyone thought like, you know, so far everyone like heads south and then they get like a little bloody nose and they head back north. Yeah, and there, exactly. I think there's a cross, I think there's a crossroads and everyone's like, oh, we're all, we're going home. Like everyone's like sad, you know, and then they start turning and like everyone goes like nuts. And I was like, oh my God, that like, that almost like brought a tear in my eye because you can imagine all these people who just want to, you know, end this and go home. Right. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I see like a little bit of a parallel between Scipio and then at the same time, um, that's a really beautiful scene. Right. And uh and I think there was only, um, in terms of the Grant's March South, I think there was like a cold, cold harbor, which is one of his less right. than good decisions. But then for the most yeah. part, it was he was making smart decisions as he moved south and Sherman was moving east. Right. Yeah. Well, it's the, the whole idea of an annihilated victory. And there's some, um, there's some argument that Grant uh, was in overall control, but operating with the Army of the Potomac, but he left... Um, tactical control to George Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac. And some historians argue that it was more Meade that launched the Cold Harbor attack than Grant. Uh, but mm. Grant, you know, later says that he regretted it, uh, along with renewing the assault against Vicksburg on May the 22nd. So, uh, you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. And, and Grant owned up to some of his, and he never owned up to others. But uh, <laughs> there, there are plenty of mistakes there to talk about as well as, as – uh, as uh, as victories one one thing that i thought was um i read a book called about face which i am i'm staring at right now and it's about the it, about halfway through he talks about this idea that and i think it was vietnam they started they they stopped churning out generals they stopped replacing them which uh meant that we had less than great generals on the battlefield and it seemed that between and this is just like maybe ignorance on my part but it seemed like union even though they were firing a lot of generals it was kind of churning it out to the point where grant could rise but the right. Confederacy seemed kind of locked in. Like Johnson, I don't know if I ever was like told to go home and stop it. Um, yeah. And that seems like kind of a deciding thing. Well, I've got a theory on that. Um, it seems to me every generation of American history has its certain military geniuses that rise to the top. You know, we talk about World War II and you've got 
the Eisenhowers and the Marshalls and the Nimitzes and the, well, I don't know if I'd go so far as to uh, uh, call MacArthur a genius. I'm not a MacArthur fan, but um, anyway, you, you've got that certain number of, of, of leaders that rise to the top, you know. Uh, but in the Civil War, unfortunately, for both sides probably, and this is probably a reason that it, it kept on going as, as long as it did, um, you're diluting your your base, your your generation genius pool uh, by half because part goes north, part goes south. Um, you know, in other wars, we had them all together as Americans to, to fight, you know, the Germans, the Japanese, the Vietnamese or, or whatever. Uh, but here you're dividing it in half. Um, and then when some start getting fired or getting killed or, or whatever, you have to start dipping down, really use a baseball reference, I guess, down into AAA and bringing people up. Um, and pretty soon the Confederacy, you know, is dipping down into double A and single A to bring up people really uh, by the time you get to John Bell Hood or somebody that's just not ready for, for prime time, you know, and it showed in, in, uh, in their leadership there. So, um, you know, there's only, only a few Grants and Lees and, and people that can really, uh, really do this thing. And, and uh, it's kind of interesting. Grant, you know, if we look at it like football playoffs or, or whatever, Grant kind of rose to the top in the West. Um, and Lee kind of rose to the top in the East. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it's the college football playoff, you've got this bracket and this bracket, and then you have the championship uh, in Virginia, you know, in 1864, and see so who came out on top. And uh, it was uh, not quite the blowout that Georgia beat TCU earlier this year, but uh, it was uh, it was definitely a, a union victory. So. Yeah. Um, speaking of Lee, I read this theory that, uh, like, so in the beginning, this isn't a theory, this part isn't a theory, but, like, we offered him like a major command and then he said, no, I'm going to go like fight for Virginia and people. Yeah. yeah. And people, um, if there is that one of the reasons why he didn't really leave that region is that he was really just defending Virginia versus really think about the whole Confederacy total. Is that something that holds water for you as someone who knows more about the subject? Well, yeah, a little bit. Um, you, you, uh, mentioned that earlier, you know, that he really didn't have a larger contextual viewpoint until later in the war, but, he's not given that opportunity. It's only in, I believe, March of 1865 that he's really given command of the entire Confederacy. Uh, But there are opportunities before that. For instance, during the Vicksburg campaign, when Grant is is moving toward Vicksburg, uh, there are are intense discussions in Richmond about what to do about Vicksburg. And Jefferson Davis, remember Vicksburg, he's his plantation's just south of Vicksburg. You know, he's from Mississippi, a senator from Mississippi. and so Davis is talking about sending some of Lee's troops and maybe even Lee himself out west uh, to to take over this crisis situation that we've got going on here. And I'm not sure how <coughs> really um, how far it got along the, the thought of actually sending Lee, but certainly talking about sending some of Lee's troops uh, maybe to Vicksburg, but probably more likely to Middle Tennessee, and then some of the Middle Tennessee troops going going to Vicksburg. But um, that whole idea of sending troops from Virginia or Lee from Virginia uh, was talked about, uh, and Lee was deathly adamant, "No, we do we do not want to do that." And in fact, he offered a a uh, a different scenario to take pressure off of Vicksburg. Uh, and that was for him to invade the North again. He had just invaded the, the North, Maryland, in uh, September of 1862, and that didn't turn out very well in Antietam, of course. 
but there were a lot of things that went wrong on, on that. And Lee says, let's do it again. And if we can make it up into Pennsylvania, threaten Harrisburg capital, maybe even Washington, D.C., they will have to pull troops from the Mississippi Valley uh, to help defend Pennsylvania and, and Washington and so on. And that will relieve pressure from um, uh, from Vicksburg. And, of course, we know that that results in the Gettysburg campaign and the climactic battle of, of Gettysburg. Uh, but even in, in all of those negotiations and so on, Lee is very Virginia and Eastern theater centric. Uh, no, I don't want to send troops to the West. I don't want to go to the West, that that type thing. So uh, I think there is definitely um, reason to believe that he, uh, you know, I, I think his heart's in the Confederacy, the larger Confederacy, but his heart is probably more so uh, within the Confederacy uh, in Virginia as opposed to other places. Would, um, I think on the Vicksburg is something that was committed in the sense of like, if you tried moving troops back North, they really wouldn't have been able to do that. Cause then they'd have to sail past the fort again. So it, it would, isn't that like Lee's idea of making them draw troops back that really wouldn't do much. Like they wouldn't really, I don't think they would well, draw troops back. Uh, after, yes, you're right. In a certain extent, after Grant marches uh, South of Vicksburg, West of the river, uh, and then crosses the river there at Bruinsburg and then marches northward to Vicksburg. Yeah, there once they get in Mississippi across the river, they're in in no real good shape to um, to to get out of there until they win this thing, you know. But uh, there are Grant crosses the river initially that first day with like 20,000 troops. And by a week or two later, he's got like 30, 33,000 or so troops. Uh, marching on Vicksburg. By the end of the Vicksburg campaign, he's got about 77,000 troops. So what the, the North is doing is funneling reinforcements into Grant, uh, into Mississippi. Um, and certainly had Lee been successful in Pennsylvania, I doubt all of those troops would have been funneled uh, to, to Vicksburg. They probably likely would have gone to Pennsylvania and Washington and, and, uh, and all that. So there's some, some, some thought in, in, um, in that. So you're right. The, the initial group that, that, that moved across the river, probably you're not getting them out until they're, uh, either captured and sent to prison camps or, or victorious. And of course we know they turned out victorious. How many people were in Vicksburg? Could they have done it with the initial 30,000, 33,000? Well, uh, Confederates, in terms of troops, when uh, the con when Pemberton surrenders on July the 4th, uh, he surrenders about 29,000 and change. I forget the exact number. About twenty, about 30,000 troops. But now probably a third or more of those are on the sick list uh, because there's bad water, bad food, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, you also have to remember that Joseph E. Johnston, who's been sent to relieve Vicksburg, has no intention whatsoever of doing so. Um, by the, the time the, the siege is up and going and, and get toward the end, he has upwards of 20, 30,000 troops that he's amassed as well. So uh, the Confederates have a lot of troops. They're just not concentrated. And uh, certainly Grant probably could not have done it uh, with the initial 20,000 that he crosses with, and maybe not even the 33,000 that he ultimately amasses before those major reinforcements starts coming in. Um, so it would have been a, it would have been an interesting thing to, to see, but uh, certainly those reinforcements coming in gives him a lot of leeway and a lot of uh, ability to, to guard his rear from Johnston while he's got the, the bird in the cage at Vicksburg, you know, kind of, kind of facing both ways. Mm-hmm. And Vicksburg is, is it the, I always get fuzzy with the defensive lines. He, he built a wall 
uh, a trench around Vicksburg, but then didn't he uh, dig another one going the other way? Exactly, yeah. Um, Which is uh, something that Julius Caesar did. Yeah, yeah. well, it goes back to Vauban and, and uh, the line of uh, circumvallation and, and mm. uh, uh, always get mixed up on contra or, or uh, counter. I think it's uh, countervallation is the one in, in the rear. You know, the one got the, the enemy hemmed in the siege, and then you've got the rear line facing the opposite direction to protect your siege forces, you know. And uh, Graham's really worried about Johnston in, in, in his rear, um, which um, – as we know from 20 hindsight's 2020, he didn't have a lot to worry about, but, uh, at the time he really was, he really was worried about it. Sent in fact, uh, about a third or more of about 33,000 troops or so to that rear line under Sherman himself, um, to, to guard the rear there. So Grant was pretty worried about it. And I think this is the, one of the only times he did that in the civil war, all the other times he was either in the union heading South. So his rear was protected by, you know, unions behind him. So I think if I'm remembering right, there's no other general that did something like that in the civil war. Well, uh, probably not, but Vicksburg's a little bit of a different situation. Um, the, the, the term siege is thrown around a lot in the civil war, the siege of Atlanta, the siege of Petersburg, uh, the siege of, uh, whatever. Uh, and in true, um, going back to ancient military history of Oban and, and others, um, an actual siege is when you have an enemy um, hemmed in either against a river or some impassable uh, or either got them surrounded uh, at Atlanta, at Petersburg. All these aren't traditional uh, ancient type sieges because they're never fully surrounded. You know, they're able and, and Lee, of course, marched away from Petersburg. Uh, in April of 1865, Hood marched away from Atlanta in September of 1864. Um, so in th those types of sieges, even though we call them sieges, they're not the traditional type of siege that um, that Vicksburg actually is. So that that accounts for a little bit of the of the differences there. Hmm. And then um, I, I was reading once that when the Germans were fighting, I'm just jumping all over the place in history, but I, yeah, uh, that's when good. The, when the Germans were fighting Americans, they thought they found it somewhat irritating because they would they would see uh, Americans scouting out ten different spots, but then we hit them in an eleventh. And uh, Grant's <laughs> described as a modern general, so did he do that type of thing too? I know he had like raiding parties that would go in with uh, uh but they were like kind of in their own thing, doing their own type of like initiative. Did he do right. that type of scouting as well? Was that oh, like yeah. a new thing? Yeah, um, he would use a lot of diversions, for instance, in the Vicksburg campaign. Um, when he, the, the critical point is crossing the river south of Vicksburg, of course, on April 30th, um, at, uh, at Bruinsburg there, uh, right around that same time, he's got Sherman up at Chickasaw Bio where he, he was defeated several months before. Um, Frederick Steele had just been up around Greenville. Uh, Grierson's raid is moving through the heart of Mississippi to the north, uh, to the northeast. Uh, April Strait's mule march is taking pressure off of Grierson. So you've got, you got diversions to diversions that are diverting attention away from Grant. And what's interesting, every all of these diversions are to the north and the northeast, while Grant is crossing the river to the south and the southwest. So everything is 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 taking Confederate attention in one way, and Grant's you know hiding the ball, kind of a hidden ball type type trick. I describe it a little bit sometimes as this super. Are you a football fan? Are you like like football? It's um, uh, I used to play. Okay, it's kind of like this super trick play 
where, you know, you've got a runner in motion and you snap the ball uh, and the quarterback uh, fakes a handoff of a dive or something and then, and then drops back and, um, uh, you know, hands off on a reverse. And then the other receiver's coming around as flea flicker. And then that receiver throws it back to the quarterback. And then the quarterback, you know, pump fakes a, a Hail Mary downfield. Uh, and then just kind of tucks the ball and just runs right up the middle for a touchdown. You know, it's it's all of this diversion stuff going on uh, all over the field, but the quarterback just kind of tucks the ball and, and runs right up the middle to the touchdown. Kind of what what Grant Grant does. Uh, but the the net result of all of this is that Grant has got Pemberton, uh, you know, so flustered his his head is just spinning on his shoulders because he's got junk going all over the place and he has no idea where the real real blows gonna land. You know, I've often said that if somebody would create a John C. Pemberton bobblehead doll, it would be perfect because that's exactly what Pemberton's head's doing. You know, it's bobbling like a bobblehead, um, and that would that would be illustrative of uh, of what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. What, Probably sound well right? at Vicksburg Park too. So. <laughs> was he um was he writing that stuff down in the journal in his journals or something like that like how do you um other than him just like writing about it or talking about it like how do you learn that type of detail uh well uh we have fortunately um all the well not, i don't say all of them by any means but the vast majority probably of the major important records that were produced during the Civil War. They were just like military now. Anything you do, any operation, whatever, you come back and you write an after-action report. This is what mm. we did. This is how we did it. This is when we did it. Um, get, given a lot of detail in, in that kind of stuff. So all these officers, if they survived, um, would write these after-action reports. We have Grant's report of Vicksburg. We have his four commander's report, stone down to, to um division and regimental and and uh, brigade level and and so on so we have all these reports um and fortunately they have been published in uh, what's called the official records of the war of the rebellion you ever heard of the official records it's 128 volumes um that were published uh, on by congress you know government print office back in the 1880s 1890s where they compiled there's a commission that they compiled all of this stuff um and not just reports, but correspondence, all of the, the anything to do with all these campaigns, um, they they uh, they compile it. And I'll just give you an example here. I'm sitting in this bookshelf that I got the phone on. Um, you you saw the bookshelves back here, but but there's another big one right here. It's got 128 <laughs> volumes to it, um, and uh, wow. that's one volume. And let me get my glasses here. This is series one, volume 42, part three. Um, and it's dealing with the Richmond campaign in, in 1864. And just this volume itself, I'll just look on the back page is 1531 pages. Um, just, just one volume there. And it's just chock full of reports and, and correspondence and all, all of that. So that, that makes it very easy. I'm not aware. I don't do a whole lot in the Mexican war. I've done a little bit in the Mexican war, but you know, the war of 1812 and so on. Uh, I'm not aware that there was another publishing project this large uh, to compile all of the officials, what's called the OR, the official records um, for, for other wars. I know the Army in World War II did what I believe what's called the Green Books, you know, the operations and so on. But it's not nearly as extensive as, as the official records. 100, 128 huge volumes. Um, and then there's a whole nother set. I think it's 
uh, I can't remember, 20-something volumes for the Navy's, the, the Naval official records. Uh, but that mainly is Army and Brigade and, you know, that level of, of important stuff. Uh, there's a whole lot of other material. Uh, in fact, I've just been dealing some with it today um, that's in the National Archives. And you go to the National Archives and you you get boxes and ledger, big leather ledger books and so on um, that's literally bound with red tape. You hear about the red tape, you know, the, it's, it's tied up in a bow, red, red ribbon around it and so on. That's where the red tape thing comes from. Uh, and so there's a whole nother level of what the commission deemed unimportant stuff below hmm. just what was published, you know, so you can spend a lifetime in the national archives, uh, looking all this stuff up. So there's, there's tons of stuff out. There. It's uh, it's just a, it's like a treasure hunt finding it though, but that's what's so fun about it. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, when you're, when you're reading, when you're digging into these things, do you visit the places that they talk about to contextualize it? Oh yes. The battlefields you mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The, the camps, battlefields, all that stuff. Yeah, you can't you can't write good history without seeing the terrain. I'm big on terrain. I like to describe the terrain and so on. Um, and you can you can read all the reports, look at maps, um, any of that all day. Uh, but until you go to the field itself, you know that that's uh, that's the probably you know for instance, Shallow. I worked for the National Park Service for many years, and um, the shallow battlefield is almost pristine and really that's one of the best sources that we have. Uh, sure. We have the reports and maps and, and all that, but um, the battlefield itself is, is really one of the, the, the important sources in studying anything like this. So I don't know how you'd really write, you know, much of anything hmm. about going to the field. And that's, what's so important about battlefield preservation. You know, we have today, I don't know if you're familiar with American uh, battlefield trust mm -hmm. that's uh, doing the, the preservation of, it's of like land. 50,000 so acres. Yeah. Right. 50 over 50,000. I think a lot like 54, 55,000 acres now doing just wonderful work. And uh, the park service has the battlefield protection program. Congress uh, funds, you know, some battlefield protection and, and so on. So there's a lot of good, um preservation work being done out there uh and it's it's really important because you know as as uh battlefields get uh, urbanized and so on you just lose uh kind of the context and you, you've lost it forever you know what the what the ground looked like and and one of the best sources that you have you know you, we don't need to lose that there was um i was in uh pennsylvania philadelphia randomly i don't remember why i was there but uh, Valley Forge is nearby. It was like an hour away. I was like, I'm definitely going to see Valley Forge. And yeah. so I always pictured Valley Forge as like more of a small thing, like maybe a football field or bigger. But I go there, it's like, it's massive. This is big, big thing. Like yep. even like I read Chernow and a bunch, I, I've probably read like four or five books on Washington. He's one of my favorite um, people. But like just going there, there's so many different things. I, and then there's people there that will kind of like reenact and tell you different parts right. of yeah. the, the yeah. thing. And uh, I got lost on a... On, yeah, I got lost on the side of a hill, and, and thankfully, one of the rain actors came and was like, "Hey, are you lost up here?" <laughs> There's like a little hill on the on the west side near where the Washington House is, and I was like, "I had right, no idea yeah. where I was going." I think I was yeah. like just going into the woods, <laughs> but it was like uh, there's like the little um, statue that the uh, statue you can walk under. That's there's a, mm -hmm. another one in like uh, Paris, and I think there's one in like Central Park in uh, mm -hmm. New York City. And I was it's like near there, but I, yeah, I got lost. But but that's yeah. how big it is. I, yeah, I just yeah. I thought it was gonna be smaller, and so um, are there um, and it 
it, it just felt historical. I think if you didn't tell me what the what it was and you just walked me on, there's like, oh, there's something special about this place. Right. Are yeah. there are there places like that for you where you walk there and you kind of like feel it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it definitely. Um, Shallow's a very special place to me. I I've uh, lived there um, actually in park housing right behind the business center. There's some houses back there, and I lived there for several years until I got married, and my wife wasn't just uh, terribly. Uh, thrilled with living on a park 4,000 acres by herself and you know a national cemetery next door and all that and uh, I tell people she wanted to move town I want to stay and we compromised and moved town so um, <laughs> that's the that's the way it works but uh, I lived there several years before we got married and and um, I I never experienced anything supernatural I never saw mm. any ghosts or I never you know anything like that uh, but you, I very definitely felt it, not the presence of the veterans, but uh, the 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 weight of what happened there and the weight yeah. of, of how important this is, and that you know other other places um, as well. It's just uh, um, these places are 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 very important to uh, us as Americans. It's where we became America. You know, a lot of them certainly Battle Forge and in the revolution, but uh, it's where we maintained America, you know, in the civil war. And, and they're just, they're special places and you can, you can feel it when you step on them. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, there's a, a fun movie called national treasure. I don't know if you're into them, but it oh, was yeah, uh, Nicholas Cage. Yeah. yeah. I hear there's and, another uh, one coming out um, sometime maybe. I, I think there's a TV series. I hear about the third one coming out, but I don't know if it's true, but okay. my wife and I are big fans of, of history. And right. so we're, we're pretty excited for it. Um, yeah. But he talks about, I think it's the second one, where the difference between pre and post the Civil War is that people talked about, uh, like, I forget the actual quote, but it's like we, they talked about America as like a we, like something that exists versus like an experiment, I think, was like the, right. the gist of it. Like yeah. the Civil War, like, transitioned America into something else. Right. Well, from a collection of states, individual yeah. states to a United Nation kind of kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been reading a lot recently on like what do the framers know about in terms of democracy? Like what do they have to draw on before they founded the country and then push forward? And there wasn't really that much. There wasn't a lot of uh, examples out there to pull yeah. from. Well, and this definitely was an experiment. Um, yeah, nobody really tried this type of thing specifically before. And um, you know, the I think the context we again we look from from hindsight with 2020, but when Lincoln talked about four score and seven years ago, you know, that's only 87 years and that's yeah. just infancy in terms of nationhood, you know, look at France and England been around for centuries. And, um, you know, I think there was, uh, some thought actually that this thing may not make it, you know, to, to fruition It's still a baby and, uh, you know, may not make it out of, out of, uh, adolescence and so on. But, um, uh, the Civil War certainly tested that, of course, and uh, certainly um, uh, we with, withstood it and withstood a lot more uh, since then, the World Wars and, and so on. But um, even now, we're coming up, what, on the 250th um, anniversary, which, uh, you know, still in terms of, um, of longstanding nations, we're still pretty, pretty young as a, as a nation, you know, but uh, uh, hopefully it'll it'll continue on as long as those others so. mm-hmm. yeah i think um there's uh like two factors like two two fa- factors i think are interesting it's like i'm i'm about 30 and um i'm like 20 percent the age of the united states like I, I just always feel 
like when people talk about history, I just assume it's so so long ago. But right. America's only like I think uh, Tyler, uh, President Tyler, has grandkids. Granted, like he had kids when like in his seventies, they had kids right. in their seventies. I think he has grandkids up. And there's right. even like people who are still pulling pension from um, the Civil War. I think I heard. And so uh, it's like yeah. it's not that far removed. Where like there are people still around. That's kind of cool. It seems uh, like a long time ago, but um, of course, the older you get, the the faster time starts starts flying, and uh, it's kind of scary. You know? Yeah, I think the I, I hear that a lot as you age, like the time goes by quicker. And I think uh, the 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 prevailing theory I, I I like is that basically you have uh, you have more to compare it to. So when you're eight years old, you only have seven other years to compare it to. So as a percentage, it seems big, but when you're yeah. thirty or I don't know thirty at least plus one. Like it's more, it's a larger, it's a smaller percentage. So right, it seems yeah. like it goes by faster. That, that makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. 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 Do you, um, actually on that front, do you do anything? Is there anything that you do to like enjoy it to make it slower? Not necessarily slower, but more enjoyable as you age. Like sometimes I, like when I explore and learn about history and I go and see the places, like it just kind of like brings things a little slower. So it, it feels bigger. Like I'm getting more in there, but like, right. I don't know um, how that works for you. Um, that's a good question. I, not consciously, I just kind of take every day as it comes and, uh, got two teenage daughters. So that don't give me much time to, uh, to think about much of anything else. Um, so I, you know, uh, I, I really enjoy doing history and researching and writing and, and all that. And that's kind of, um, it's kind of my, I don't I'd say release. I don't have a stressful life by any means, but, uh, it's my hobby. I, I don't I tell people I don't shoot pool or hunt or play golf or anything like that. When I have extra time, I, I research and write just because I enjoy it so much, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, Tom, what you were asking just a minute ago, I, I did recognize um, my parents. Uh, I moved them up here where we live in 2015. One had Alzheimer's, one had Parkinson's at mm. the same time. And I was the primary caregiver. And uh, it was it it was rougher than I realized then, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, I would do that. But, um, it was, it was tough. And I told my wife when, when we moved them up, you know, I cleared it with her, are you sure you're on board with this and all that? And I told her for, you know, we're looking at like three to five years, pretty much putting our, our lives on hold to, to care for parents, you know, uh, and it turned out it was four and a half years. And, um, in, in the midst of all of that, uh, there were times, you know, right at the end, both of them, my mom passed away in 2018, my dad in 2020. Um, but in right at the end of both lives, you know, I, I didn't do anything. I was fully, you know, consumed with, with all that. But in the midst of just the general everyday other other stuff during those five years, I, I can well remember thinking, now this is my release. This is how I, you know, step back and, and enjoy uh, just doing something that I enjoy, you know, is kind of cathartic and, and so on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, maybe a little bit of that, if that answers your, your question a little bit, but I just, I just, uh, I, I enjoy what I do and it's just fun. I, I like the process of, um, starting with this just big bulk of material and whittling it down and organizing it and telling a story with it and, and watching the, the whole thing go, uh, through the process of just a jumble of material to a finished narrative, you know, a finished published book, which is just fascinating. And then you turn around, start it, the whole process again, do it all over again. And uh, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's kind of like the seasons, you know, by 
Uh, right now, I'm ready for spring. I can't wait for spring. I'm tired of all this this cruddy weather and so on. Uh, but by the time spring comes and we have a little bit of that, I'll be ready for summer. I'll be tired of spring, you know. And by the time summer gets here, I'll be tired of the hot weather and be ready for fall. And so it's it's uh, it's a blessing, I guess, how God made it that that we have the continual cycles coming along, or else we'd get bored in in the the one. And so if I had to do nothing but research, I'd probably get tired of that, you know. But when you mm-hmm. do the research, then you transition over to the to the writing, and then if you had to just write all the time, you'd get bored with that. Uh, but then you transition to the editing and then the, the publishing and all that. And then you start the whole cycle again. So it's just, uh, it's a lot of fun. I just, uh, it's, a it's, a it's a fun, th- fun hobby to do. Mm-hmm. It sounds fun. And it's definitely integrated in your whole life. I mean, I, you're like, I, I mean, history is what you do. It's, I, yeah, yeah, I, it's, yeah. it's nice how hobbies work out that way when you can kind of right. have them wherever yeah. you go. Yeah. The, I, I am curious. There's a, I think his name's Rob Caro. If I had better eyesight, I could read. Yeah, Robert Caro. Um, he uh, he had this uh, role where, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm just still coming down, um, recovering from a cold, even though it's like been three weeks. But um, right, yeah. when he, his first mentor said that when you when you're researching something, that you should look at every page, like turn every page basically. So like he looks at every single thing that he can get his hand on, and he he re- even if it's just in a glance, he like reads it all. Do you have a similar structure when you're researching? Because like even even in this conversation, we have like the the books behind you, well in front of you, and then you have the stuff in the archives, which they didn't think was important. But then I always wonder like, what's the stuff that wasn't even in the archives that could be out there that could be hidden gems? So like, right. how do you? What was your process for you know getting all that, getting to the truth? Well, it, it's an interesting question. Um, the the uh, there's kind of two levels of, of answer there. Number one, uh, yes, you want to exhaust the material. Uh, you want to you want to keep you know researching, and I know people and historians that'll be working on a book for twenty years and probably never publish it because they keep just keep looking for this one more nugget and keep researching and and all that. Um, and what I do, I, yes, I exhaust what is available in the official records and and all that. Um, in the letters and diaries and the archives and and all that, I I make a a pretty comprehensive sweep uh, on especially the the big repositories like the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. I'll go up there in Springfield and and they'll haul out like a hundred different collections that have that letters and diaries and all that, you know. Um, uh, other places, just numerous collections of, of, of material and so on. Uh, but, and I really learned this on when I did the Shallow book, um, the editor, I think my contract this was University Press of Kansas had given me, I think it was 190,000 words. Uh, and I kept researching, kept researching. When I got to, I think I counted up like 247,000 words. I said, I got to stop. I just, I got to, I got to stop this. You know, at some point you got to pull the trigger. And I talked to editors into getting me, they gave me like, I think it was 200. 210,000 or maybe 230 or something. But anyway, I had to cut some and there's nothing worse for a writer than cutting what you've already, already written, you know, but um, the, the idea there is that you, you can keep researching and make it truly comprehensive where there is not another source in America that I haven't uncovered, you know, which logically is impossible there's always going to be something in somebody's attic in a barn somewhere or something that you didn't uncover um but what really struck home to me is when i 
I kept looking and, and particularly on that book and, and elsewhere as well. And this is kind of how I know when to stop and pull the trigger and publish. Um, when I when I start running across so many letters and diaries that say the exact same thing, mm. and so many times that you can quote a soldier saying, you know, it was hot in the trenches and and we had to build a shade to cover us and so on. You know, there's only so many quotes you can use on that. So when they start saying the same old thing over and over and over, you know, you know, I've, I've pretty much exhausted pretty much everything and, and we'll 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 just go on. Um, there's always something out there. Every book I do, when I start researching something else, I always find something that I wish I'd had in the, in the book before, you know, uh, but nothing earth shattering, nothing shake, you know, sh- earth shaping or anything like that. But yeah, that'd be a cool quote to have used it. I wish I'd had it, you know, kind of thing. Um, in terms of like what you're talking about with the books and so on, um, I do have a very definite pattern. I've talked to other historians who do it completely different. There's no right way to do it, no wrong way to do it. Uh, That's what I tell my students. You know, you've got to work out your own way of doing this. Everybody has their own process. But when I start a a book or or whatever, um, I go straight to the primary sources. And we, you know, you learn all this in graduate school and so on. Uh, But the, the sources produced at the time, uh, by the people involved. That's that's the eyewitness accounts, you know, largely the official records here. Now, even in the official records, like Grant's report uh, and his Corps Commander McClernand, uh, they got in a little, a little uh, problem there. Uh, Grant actually wrote an a endorsement of McClernand's report because they didn't like each other and said, a lot of this is just fabricated and can't be trusted as history and so on. So, you know, everybody, right, even write your report, you're going to write it slanted toward you to make sure mm-hmm. that it makes me look good. It's like presidential memoirs or something. No, no president's going to write a memoir and say, I was a stupid idiot, you know, and why did anybody vote for me type, type thing? You know, you're going to make it look as, as good. So, you know, you learn that in graduate school, too. You, you Just because it's a contemporary uh, primary source doesn't mean that um, that is true <laughs> or, or uh, uh, that it's it's factual, you know. Um, so you have to compare the sources and weigh the sources and, and all that kind of stuff. But I always go to the primary sources first. Um, then I transition after all of that uh, to uh, maybe primary sources that are written after the fact, like memoirs, like Grant's memoirs. Uh, Sherman's memoirs and and regimental histories post-war and all that uh, because they really Grant you know a little bit like this there's some there's some pretty big whoppers in Grant's memoirs where he's trying to make himself look good you know and and so on um, and then after all of that uh, I go to the secondary sources other what other historians have written about this I never read the the other historians books before I write uh, mm-hmm. simply because I don't want my mind pointed in any, any direction. I want the actual sources to lead me uh, in the direction that I go. Uh, but when I get through with all the primary sources and have the narrative written, I go back and read all of the other stuff, what other historians have said about it, um, mainly to add in maybe a little bit of historiographical context, uh, largely to make sure that I haven't missed anything. You know, if, if I've uh, missed a big important something that some other historian dealt with um and it completely flew under my radar maybe i ought to go back and and read 
touch that a little bit, you know, and, and so on. So um, that's just kind of how I, I, I do things. I know other historians will say, oh, the first thing I do is read the secondary accounts to get, get it in my mm-hmm. mind, get it, you know, get the picture in my mind. And then I write and, and so on. So um, I'm not saying my way is better. Um, I, I would prefer to be led by the original sources rather than other what other historians have said, you know, because and, and a lot of times, you know, you just kind of regurgitate what what others have said. And, uh, yeah. You know, in some cases that may be appropriate. In some cases it may not be. So I don't know. That's just how I'll do it. Yeah. No, it, it sounds like a really good way. If I were if I were writing like you, I would, I would do it the same way, though. I don't think I'll do it as well as you do it. The, there was a a book by Chernow called Titan, and in there it's about the Rockefellers. Rockefellers. And there's um, yeah. He talks about how I think there was Idra Tarbell, Turbell, who I wrote about know. Rockefellers. Yeah, and her dad was put out of business by the Rockefellers. So the big, like most of the PR about how the Rockefellers were perceived is based on her accounts of the Rockefellers, and she hated the Rockefellers, and you know had all these reasons to hate them and stuff. Right. And it's like. If you trust the secondary sources, the stuff that comes right after, um, I mean, there's there's like so so much opportunity for bias. That's why I like. Uh, I think I'm up to like the civil rights era. Anything before then, I like anything before then because there's enough time for the stuff to be out and like people found it. You know, like most of the stuff in the attics have come out more or less. Right. Yeah. yeah, and even then, like there's still tons of stuff from that era, even well, before. It, there's always something. It takes a little while um when i teach my classes my freshman classes for instance i will uh i'll stop probably in the 70s or 80s maybe i'll go up to the end of the cold war or something mm-hmm. um but i'll even deal with clinton and bush and obama and and certainly yeah, they're alive uh, uh trump or, or biden or anything because uh, that's current events to me and people the even kids these days um will have a theory on them you know they're they will have a preconceived something and and so on so uh i just hit the high points like 9 11 you know and and so on hit hit it very quickly on that but um i'm I'm a firm believer that it takes uh, a good while for us to get a context of of what happened just take for example i mentioned the bush thing um the invasion of iraq in 2003 you know that there's a lot of political on both sides back and forth and the weapons of mass destruction and how accurate was the intelligence and, and all that kind of stuff. But I said, even back then, um, and still say now that the, the jury is still out that, you know, if, if it's, it probably take 50 years or so, um, for us to really know if, if, if in 2050, for instance, we look back and if Iraq at that point is a stable and functioning democracy, and a leader in that region, you know, in terms of democracy and freedom and voting and, and, and all of that, we'll look back at George Bush and say, the guy was a genius. You know, he, he was, he was way ahead of his time. He saw things that other people didn't. If Iraq falls back into, you know, the, the, the fights between the, the, the groups of, you know, the Kurds and the Shias and, and all that kind of stuff. And it, if it breaks down into, just chaos, you know, and there are no free and fair elections and all that. Everybody will look at Bush and say, you know, the guy was a was an idiot, you know. So um, the point is, I, we still don't know, even in in Iraq, yeah. you know. And I think twenty years after the Civil War, probably it was too early to really uh, know what is coming of this. What was, <coughs> you know, who was right, who was wrong, Lincoln Davis, and, and all that. Uh, One hundred sixty years gives you a whole lot of good perspective. Uh, 
much better than than what they had back then. And certainly when they were writing their memoirs, you know, and, the, and Grant mm-hmm. was writing in the 1880s, uh, he certainly didn't have the perspective that we do now. Is there a, an area within the Civil War that's still fuzzy to you that you're like, it just, it sounds like your, your mind's a steel trap. Like you're, you know, April 30th, you're like, you know, it's like you have all this information, but is there an avenue or an, an aspect that you're still, you know, like one, there's a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote where the more you learn, the more you have, you, the more you increase the surface area of your ignorance. And like, yeah. that's where discoveries happen. And so I'm just curious, like, is there, is there an area that you're ignorant in and in, in a good way of like you're discovering and, and learning new things? Right. Yeah. You, you know what an expert is, don't you? An expert is somebody who knows more and more and more about less and less and less until pretty soon, you know, everything about nothing. And that's kind of, you know, the way, the way it is. But I, I would say the vast majority of the Civil War, I'm still hmm. fairly ignorant. I mean, I know the basics. I know the armies. I know the commanders. I know the dates and, and so on like that. Um, but my main area of focus is the Mississippi Valley um, from, you know, Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson, Shiloh, Corinth, Vicksburg, that 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 area, the movement down the Mississippi Valley, Concord, Mississippi Valley. Um, that's where I know the dates and the specifics and, and all that kind of stuff. You get outside of that, and I I couldn't I couldn't lead a you know ten minute tour at, at Antietam or get I mean I, I could I could tell you the, the basics and and so on, but I don't know the Corps commanders and what corps they were, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I'm a fairly firm believer that historians should stay in your lane. Um, I know historians that do something on, you know, this, and then they jump over here, even within the civil war, you know, they jump all around and so on. Um, and I, that's fine if they want to do that, but I, I have thought I'll probably just stay in my little, little lane here where I, um, kind of know what I'm talking about and, and drive slow in my little lane, you know, type, type thing. Uh, they're not a lot of historians and there's some argument back and forth and so on. But for instance, Stephen Ambrose, you know, who, who wrote mm-hmm. on Lewis and Clark and then, and then wrote on Nixon and then wrote on, uh, um, you know, the transcontinental railroad and then went to D-Day and, and all that, you know, back and forth and, and so on for doggone good books. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say actually the, the vast majority of the civil war, I'm, I'm ignorant in, in terms of way you used it you know um uh, there's different in, difference in ignorant that's that's just not knowing everything and being ignorant and that's being uh being stupid uh ignorant. Yeah. so ignorant ignorant and ignorant is uh two completely different things so yeah, yeah. i'm ignorant of most of, of most of the civil war to that level yeah ignorant is a is a choice like you can work on it or stupid is like, I guess something you just, you just live in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, a, no, no going back from that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, so what, is, what is, what is, uh, if you, if you could, um, I guess if you could follow someone in the civil war and I guess you were like, yeah, we're in a bubble. So no, no one could shoot you or anything. And you had all the food you needed and they wouldn't know you were there. So you're not going to mess with history. I actually think the best superpower would be able to like see in time you know, like if you had like, that'd be like, I just sit and like watch things all the time. But um, right. like if you, if you could f- go back and follow someone and see what actually happened, how it actually was, and it would have the greatest possibility of, uh, you know, making you more ignorant, I guess, what, what, what would it be? Oh, wow. Um, oh, there, there's so many 
mm-hmm. scenes, just like you were talking about Grant at that crossroads saying, no, we're going, we're not doing like we've always done. We're going this way. We're continuing on. Um, they're just, just so many dramatic scenes, you know, that I would love to be a fly on the wall type thing. You're, you're talking about, you know, um, gosh, I don't know. Uh, a lot of the Vicksburg stuff, I would have liked to have been at Bruinsburg to watch the, watch Grant's army land that morning, you know, um, I would have liked to have been at the war council that Albert Sidney Johnston had with his generals the night before Shiloh. Um, <coughs> board guards telling him, you know, we need to get out of here. We need to retreat. And uh, Johnston says, I'd fight them if they were a million, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of stuff like that. Lincoln's assassination at Appomattox when Grant surrenders to Lee. Um, God mercy, just tons of, tons of stuff. I'd, mm-hmm. It'd be hard to pick just one. Yeah, that's right. Like, you know, sometimes I don't know if they do this uh, when you're in college, but uh, like sometimes people ask, like, if you got like a superpower and why, but you can't have like the power of all powers. I don't know why people do that. I think it's very annoying. <laughs> I've I've really liked the idea if you could just like look in, in time right. and, and like hear and see everything. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I don't know. I think it'd be a, a, a fun thing. But if I had if I had the ability to give powers, I'd give that to you so you could, you could see oh, all well, these that, things. That would, that would definitely liven up these books a little more <laughs> and uh, make them probably a little more accurate. You could, it would be interesting to... For instance, to see whether Grant or McClernand was right in these reports, mm. you know, this report is is nothing is fiction. You know, uh, probably I'm guessing the truth would be somewhere in the middle, as it most time is. Yeah, I think uh, after the war, Lee was, if I remember right, he was pretty quiet on things. Do you think? Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't seem like that was, in hindsight, maybe the best thing to do because of all the. I don't think Reconstruction did very well. If he was like more supportive of the war, I think Grant kept right. trying to get him to say like, "Hey guys, let's be." Like it was, all, it seemed like it was always on Grant to be the bigger man, while the South was just kind of grumpy about it. And in how I would summarize it, right. um, is that is that I guess it, you have a larger context. Is that the case? Do they were there leaders that tried you know doing what Grant was doing in terms of like trying to bridge people back together? And then I guess with the context of history, looking at it, um, was that the right move for Lee to just? be quiet i guess right i think grant got a little irritated with lee actually for not yeah. becoming more uh, more outspoken so of course there were some southerners that that did that um some high-ranking confederates for instance uh, james longstreet becomes a republican and and gets very involved in the um uh, reconciliation movement you know and and all that kind of stuff um within the unified solid democratic former confederate south though of course uh, they even turn on on some of these. Uh, mm-hmm. They turn on Longstreet, you know, and and so on. Um, so there's not a lot of uh, uh, there's there's not a lot of friends to be won in the South by doing that, uh, and that's probably why you know no more than than what they did actually actually took that route. Most uh, well, a lot of them took the the vocal. Uh, anti-reconstruction route you know we're opposed to this uh we're going to take back our our state governments and so on from reconstruction governors and and so on um call themselves redeemers a religious term you know Mm. that that we're redeeming our state from these these uh vandals that have come in to to take us over in reconstruction you know and so on um I would guess, uh, and of course, the squeaky wheel always gets the grease, and probably the squeaky wheel on both sides. I would guess the vast majority of Southerners uh, were probably like Lee and just kind of just did their own thing and kept their mouths shut and uh, hoped to to get out of it without any more damage, probably, really. Uh, mm. 
and that seems to be kind of what what Lee was 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 doing. And I, I think he understood, of course, that uh, any statement he makes is going to be national news instantly. You know, uh, so he's probably in a little different situation than a lot of a lot of Southerners. But uh, I think he's very careful um, in what he says because uh, no matter what he says, it's going to be taken and construed and twisted. You know, either either way, probably by both sides. Um, to to be used and really what he didn't say, you know, so it's kind of a catch twenty two. He's probably in a in a no win situation there. Yeah, I was. I'm trying to read more about Reconstruction because no one talks about it. Like when I was in college, you you you, you take a class on it, but then like they couldn't keep it going because not yeah. enough people joined. Same with right. Native Americans, and that's why it was it was interesting to see that like there was a even Native Americans on like Grant's uh, council. There was a I wrote his name down. Uh, Colonel Eli Parker, apparently Eli was Parker, a yeah. Se- Seneca, Seneca Indian. Indian. It's like, yeah. yeah. And so it's like, <clears throat> it wasn't, it, it's just interesting to see how like all these different parties are still there, but they don't get like the, res- I don't think people give them the respect they're, they, they're due. Like even when I was in college, which was, you know, I don't know, like 10 years ago, um, you couldn't get an Native American course. You couldn't get a reconstruction yeah. course. And so, but at the same time in, um, the civil war, I think, uh, uh, not, uh, Sherman, he, he was giving former slaves like pieces of land and they were doing really, really well on that. And, um, but then reconstruction started failing and then they didn't get that type of support and stuff. Right. And, um, at, I think it was just recently watching a, a documentary or like a, a talk that uh, Martin Luther King gave. And he was talking about how America was giving out free land to people who were settling in the Midwest and the, and, and the West West. But mm-hmm. then during reconstruction, like it went back where like people weren't getting land and stuff to like start right. anew. So yeah. then, you know, like, how do you, how do you, you know, if you're going from like, you know, slave to, you know, maybe getting a little bit, a bit of a leg up and then it gets taken away. Like, I think there were even elected officials and stuff right. uh, during that time. And then you had like the Klan and all these other people start being, you know, horrible things for the next like 60 years. But granted a huge part, uh, I was reading that he did a huge part in trying to like stamp down the Klan, um, where right. many people were getting really pissed about it. Like, he, I think you, uh said like i'm so tired of of hearing these things at a certain point because like no one wanted to hear about it anymore even though there's like i don't know how how good that was in terms of a long-term thing they better address it then but at the same time i guess it was finally addressed by the civil rights time which is like 100 years later which sucks for everybody yeah well the the whole thing of reconstruction grant kind of inherits a mess um and i i've often said uh, that there are no good answers during Reconstruction. And Lincoln, you know, obviously he didn't plan it like this. He didn't go out to get assassinated. And if he had a choice, he would have probably skipped Fort Theater that night. I'm sure he would have. But in terms of his legacy and, and, and memory and all of that, he was killed at exactly the right time. He, he won the war, freed slaves, Father Abraham, all that kind of stuff. But then he's, he becomes a martyr at exactly the right time. Uh, to when he doesn't have to deal with Reconstruction. He already started, obviously. Reconstruction starts with 1863. But if Lincoln had continued on through his second term, I'm not sure we'd see the Lincoln as the, the great, you know, Lincoln that we view today. Uh, because he would, he the, the, the decisions that he would have had to make um, are going to turn somebody off, make somebody mad. Uh, because, I mean, you just can't please everybody in, in all of that. Um, 
and so I'm not sure he would have been the beloved president that, that we view him today had he not been killed at exactly the, the, the right time. And so a little bit of that grant inherits some of this no-win situation, you know, that um, really, and I argue this in my, in my classes, and um, I, I, I believe it. I don't know, you know, other historians, what they think about it. But to me, the Civil War is a limited war with limited goals. Uh, and limited outcomes. Uh, and we think of the Civil War and people say, well, it ended slavery. It ended um, secession. Uh, those are big things. Sure, they're big things. Those are those are big, big topics, but they're not the biggest topics. Um, you know, when when you end secession, that that's a specific action that you're stopping uh, and ending forever. We haven't had any issue with secession, you know. I mean, Texas and California pipes up every once in a while that we're going to secede, but nobody's serious about it. Uh, so secession ended with the, with the Civil War, but the parent issue of secession was not settled by the Civil War and was not, they didn't try to settle the parent issue of secession, which is states' rights. And we're still dealing mm-hmm. with states' rights today all over the place um, in terms of, of uh legalizing marijuana in terms of immigration you know the folks down in texas and arizona are hollering about you know immigration and 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 do federal law or we're going to do it you know our state has a right to defend ourselves and so on. uh abortion the whole roe versus wade thing that we just saw was sending the the decision back to the state so the issue of states rights is still well controversial in in our day and was nowhere near settled by the civil war Although the one issue within that of secession actually was same thing with slavery. Yes, slavery, big, big, huge deal uh, that slavery is ended. Uh, and that's very important uh, in our in our nation's history. But the larger issue or the parent issue of slavery is racism or white supremacy. And we're still dealing with that today. The Civil War did not end the issue of racism or white supremacy. Yeah, it ended the issue of slavery. We hadn't had any issue with slavery. Government legalized or government sanctioned slavery uh, since 1865. But the parent issue of slavery, the, the racial racism issue, racial issue, uh, we're obviously still dealing, dealing with that today. So in that context, I believe the Civil War was a limited war with limited goals and limited outcomes um, that maybe may or may not have had a chance to deal with these larger parent issues. Um, but certainly the, the leaders at the time did not take it. If they had the opportunity to deal with the larger parent issues, they were satisfied with dealing with just the small symptomatic problems within the larger issue. Um, and it, it it was then that that largely you know the the South you mentioned the KKK and all that fought against Reconstruction and and chirped and hammered away at it and so on. Uh, and essentially, what happened? The Northern white public got tired of Reconstruction, got tired of dealing with this, and backed away from it and said, "Okay, we're going to be satisfied with Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, all of that." Um, and for the next you know sixty years or whatever, hundred years after the Civil War. Um, we, we have that status quo, um, which is only, uh, challenged and booked what you mentioned with the, with the civil rights movement of the 1950s, 1960s. So, uh, it took a hundred years for, 
uh, things to change. And often, you know, I ask students, who won the Civil War militarily? Well, the North did, certainly. But who won Reconstruction? And the South did. They, they basically outlasted um, the North and their will to win Reconstruction. And historians often term it the winning the peace. Uh, so for the next 100 years, the South won that one. And of course, mm -hmm. in the 1950s, 1960s, then things begin to change and, and we move on and ultimately elect a, a, a black president, a, a black vice president, you know, and so on. So um, times have changed, obviously, since then. And that legacy of, of the Civil War and the larger parent issues have uh, have um, have come back and we've dealt with with some of those, although we're still dealing with them with them a, a lot. All right. I'm pontificating now. I'll, I'll get off my soapbox and. Let you ask more questions. <laughs> no, I, I think about these things all the time. And uh, it's interesting how that it kind of takes 100 years for everything to like, like um, I was re I'm reading a book. I read uh, a biography of Jackson, Andrew Jackson, and uh, the president for anyone listening and uh, the president Polk, which is, a, you know, his protege. And it, the, this call Hickory the, and Young Hickory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mentioned that to my wife. I was like, why are they called Hickory? <laughs> but but uh, uh, I, I think it's a pretty nice nickname. But uh, yeah. the they were talking, I think there's like a John Calhoun who just kept trying to like be like, you know, uh, uh, the, the state's rights and federal rights. Uh, he was trying to say, he kept trying to say like the states could nullify a law that they didn't like yeah. all the time. Yeah. But then Jackson was like maneuvering them to, to basically shut up or he could invade them. And so like you have that in like the first like 40 ish years and then you know uh you know 40 years later then they solve that in uh, the civil war and then 100 years later we you know about 100 years later um it's solved in, in civil rights and so it's like it, it feels it takes time to resolve things in a democracy it seems it which does. is like one of the one of the negatives but at the same time i think um when there were there's like a i think it's an apocryphal story but someone asked like why do we have a senate uh a senator or a house like why do we have a bicameral legislator and why is like a Senate like a longer term before like they have to get reelected? And uh, I think it was uh, Ben Franklin where they said that um, it's like putting milk in coffee like cools things. So uh, I don't remember the, who said it. I think it was <laughs> I think it was Washington or Ben Franklin who said like the purpose of it was to like uh, keep things like to cool things down so that yep. you have kind of like a, a continuity of things. Um, but at the same time, uh, I I was I was talking to some of my friends and they were asking like, could we have done more after the Civil War? And like people were, uh, they were like pointing out this idea, like, what if we just didn't let people from the South vote again for like 20 years or something, like make them a territory. And, uh, I think I was reading that, uh, if you, if they would have done that, it would invalidate the, like what the, the North did to get them back because they, they made it seem like, oh, they were just having a, a rebellion. But if they did yeah. more, if they did more, like in a conquest way, it would invalidate the reason why they did it and it would cause problems. So like, right. it's almost it's almost like they only had a narrow band of things that they could do. And then the political will to do it was much, you know, smaller and, and diffusive. And Johnson wasted a lot yeah. of it. I think I hate that yeah. guy. I think yeah. he's, he's one of my least favorite presidents. Yeah. Well, I think he's everybody's least favorite. President. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, Lincoln had a very fine line to walk and he never admitted that the South was a nation uh, that they had ever seceded because secession, he says, wasn't legal. So uh, he's going to keep the 34 stars on the Union flags. He's going to, you know, treat this as a rebellion. And within the Constitution, Lincoln only has certain powers, and they're elevated during times of crisis or rebellion, and he exercises those extra powers. Um, but he can only go so far. That's why the Emancipation Proclamation, everybody thinks Emancipation Proclamation freed all the slaves. 
but it didn't free all the slaves. It only freed oh, slaves yeah. in yeah. areas in rebellion uh, because that's constitutionally the only power that he had uh, at the time. So within those four slave states that remain loyal to the Union, Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, and Maryland, they didn't, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free any slaves there, even though they were slave states because they weren't in rebellion. Lincoln didn't have the the super power um, that that the the emergency that the rebellion gave him uh, constitutionally. So he, yeah, he has a he has a fine line to to, to walk there. Yeah, he there was a recent pretty, pretty well. <laughs> there's a, a recent documentary I think it's on Netflix with a. Uh, I forget his name. He's a really great actor, but people were in the, in the movie, they were talking about how like if Lincoln's getting pissed off and he's saying, if I would have done what you guys wanted, all the copperheads like the Tennessee and stuff would have left us and we would have lost the war. And I, it makes you wonder, like, you know, the, the North had so many advantages. I think it had 4 million, it, four or 8 million people and the South had like much less, it was like less, much less populous place. And so you had all these advantages in the North, the industriousness and stuff like that. And I was wondering, um, if Lincoln wasn't around, would the would the South have had a chance to win, or at least have like a neutral party? Because um, they were doing well, a pretty decent job, like to hold people off. I think. Yeah, they they held off. They held on longer than most people expected. Obviously, um, you know that's a that's a counterfactual on what if mm. that we just don't know who would there have been somebody else to rise in place of Lincoln. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure anybody could have done any better than Lincoln did. Of course, Lincoln has some missteps, obviously, but who, again, who doesn't? Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of people could have done a lot worse. I'm, I don't know that many people could have steered this, this fine line, like, like, uh, like Lincoln did, but you're talking about um, hearing from both sides and these complaining that he's not going fast enough. And these complaining he's going too fast on the slavery question and, and all that. When I teach the, the, the civil war in the, in my classes and so on, I'll actually draw a spectrum up on the board and I'll put, of course, the South way over here. But then in, in the northern politics, you've got the Democrats uh, that are divided into the peace Democrats and the war Democrats. And then you have the Republicans that are divided into the, the, the moderate Republicans. And then you've got the radical Republicans. And I always put an X where Lincoln is, is sort of moderate, but leaning toward radical and over time getting a little a little more radical. It kind of shifts a little more radical. But um to, to put it in that that spectrum, you know, but there's a there's a great I don't know if you've ever been to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield. Uh, if you ever get a chance, go there. Of course, he's buried in, in Springfield. It's, it's all Lincoln in, in Springfield. And I go up there a lot uh, doing research in, the you know, for these books and so on in the in the presidential library. There. They just have tons and tons of Illinois uh, letters and diaries and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but there, you're going through the museum and there's a great exhibit you go through a little narrow hall but they've got speakers all over the place and as you go down that hall you're hearing something from this side saying lincoln you got to free the slaves faster what are you waiting on you're going way too slow on this let's get going we've got an opportunity to do something uh and then over here you're hearing lincoln man you're taking way too much power you're wanting to be king. You're wanting to be Caesar. Uh, quit you going way too fast on this. And you go down this hall and you just hear these voices bombarding you from both sides. And what it's trying to get you to think about is what Lincoln is hearing, you know, from the media and from the politicians and congressmen and senators and, and constituents and all that. 
he's being bombarded from both sides and and he you know if he you're right if he if he went totally on this side he would make a whole bunch of people over here mad and if he went totally on this side he'd make a bunch of people over here mad um and i i think he walked a pretty fine line pretty well in that i'm not yeah. sure anybody could have done it any better yeah i it, it seems pretty perfect in terms of like you know everything and then uh I think the saddest thing about Lincoln is that the day he was, well, not the saddest, but like something that makes me sad is that the day he, you know, was assassinated, he was having a happy day. And that's like, it's a big deal for Lincoln because yeah. he had, he suffered from, had, you know, probably depression. Yeah. 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 But he was finally having uh, a good day. Yeah. <laughs> Excited to go well, to the theater. I think a little Tad had gone to a different play that night. I think he went to see Aladdin uh, while Lincoln and his wife went to see the, our American cousin and. And uh, the little boy gets word, you know, that his father's been been shot, and, and so on. so a lot of a lot of sad things. Uh, uh, Lincoln, uh, a lot of a lot of sadness in his life, but uh, he rose to the occasion when he had to. Yeah, I think uh, for context that helps me understand like the assassination, uh, it'd be like Brad Pitt shooting the president. Like people, like the 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 guy who's he was, he was yeah. like a Brad Pitt type guy. Like he was yeah. very well known. Very so well just known. imagine like. You know, the president meeting Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt just shoots yeah. him. Yeah. It's like like that type of context. But I know we're coming to the end. And uh, so I want to, I want you to like take control of our listeners weekend. You can have them watch or read anything you want. And I'm literally going to listen to this. So uh, you're going to like maybe slightly irritate my wife. But um, what would you like us to, to read? You know, like, it doesn't have to like fit into the weekend because like books are big. But uh, what would you like us to read or check out that you recommend? Okay. Um. Gee, uh, that's a good question. Uh, of course, anything about me, I order all of my books. That's uh, that's important. Now, kidding. Um, <laughs> if you if you want a good read on the Civil War, um, of course, the the standard one volume treatment is is James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. It's very well written. It's uh, it's a pleasure to read. It's it, it's easy to read. So, uh, I'd recommend Battle Cry of Freedom. Um, Let's see. I'll have to just uh, look back books. I don't I don't do actually a lot of reading for pleasure, mm. believe it or not. Uh, I love history. And I love reading and, and so on. But most of what I read are letters and diaries and reports and official records and, and all that. Uh, and actually, if I do any reading for pleasure, it's it's mainly World War Two Navy Pacific stuff uh, that we talked about. Or, uh, or space history. I like Apollo and, and all that, you know, so I could give you a lot of recommendations on, on, uh, on that to watch. Um, I'd recommend it's old, but, uh, the, the Ken Burns series, um, the civil war that came on PBS in, uh, what, 1990, 91, whenever, whenever it was, it's, uh, it's a great series. Yeah. Great series. Um, historians uh some have picked it apart and said well you didn't talk about enough about slavery or well you didn't talk enough about women in the civil war or you didn't talk enough about this or you didn't so much on on this you didn't mention this battle and so on but my stars he only had what 11 hours or or so <laughs> you know you can't talk about everything there's even a book i don't know if i've got it i think i, I had it at one time i still remember got it or not but um different historians wrote different essays about uh, whether this part of Ken Burns series was good or not, or whether, you know, he could have done more on slavery or more on women or more on minorities or, or whatever, you know, just picked it apart. And I, you know, but uh, overall, if you, if you want a visual, if you don't like to read, 
uh, and want a visual, uh, you know, something to watch, um, I would I would start with that. And then the 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 more recent you mentioned the Grant series um, on the History Channel, um, and then there was a Lincoln series. Uh, we did immediately after that. Check out the Abraham Lincoln um, three night whatever six hours or so. Uh, History Channel, very very similar to the to the Lincoln thing, so or the Grant thing. So those are those are some possibilities. Sweet. And then, what would be one from the space history? I don't. I haven't gotten too much into that. Oh, uh, I tell you, if if you want a really good book, um, I'm trying to find it. It's called A Man on the Moon uh, by Andrew Chaikin, C H A I K E N. Uh, it's just fascinating. It's about the Apollo program and the, the lunar um, uh, program and, and so on. Uh, really, really fascinating. It's pretty thick. It's a pretty, pretty big book. But uh, Andrew Chaikin, uh, A Man on the Moon. It may have a different title now. They come out with different different um, parts of that, you know. So, uh, the, so your, your books will be in the show notes. Links to everything you're doing will be in the show notes. But, but um, I wonder if, you, if we could leave on a quote that you, uh, that you think about a lot or that you enjoy. One of my favorites is the thing was Ronald Reagan, and uh, I'm reading about uh, a biography on him. But um, it was like if you if you're in J- if you're an uh, immigrant who goes to Japan, you're like if, if you're a, a Russian who goes to Japan, you're still a Russian. If you're a, a, someone from Japan who goes to England, you're still Japanese. But no matter where you're from, if you go to America, you become an American. And I was like, oh, that's I, I like that idea. Like, yeah, uh, that's yeah. a very beautiful idea. I don't know how many places in the world is like that, but. Um, I, I do love that about, about America. You can come here and be American, but what, what's a, what's something that you think about in that regard? Um, I, well, I, I, Reagan had a lot of good quotes, you know, just yeah. the Reagan thing, the, the whole, uh, in this present economic trouble, government's not the solution to problem. Government is a problem. The quote is, is, uh, pretty good, but, um, I, beware I, the man saying, uh, is it, is it beware the man? Where the governor who comes and says, I have the answer to your problems or something like that? Yeah. The is that 13 it? most dreaded words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That, there you go. The yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what fascinated me it, every once in a while, I'll get on YouTube and, and whether you like Reagan or not, you know, it's um, he, he's a fascinating guy. Um, but throughout his administration, especially toward the end, he got to tell him Rus- jokes on Russians. You know, oh, on yeah. Topics, That's good. You know. And the the jokes that he would tell about Gorbachev and the communists and, and all that and what he's doing, he's 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 showing through humor, you know, the benefits of capitalism and democracy rather than communism and socialism and all that. But um, there's some funny, funny jokes on that. Uh, if from the Civil War era, if I just had to go back to to quotes, I you know, I don't think we could quote anybody better than Abraham Lincoln and and uh, probably you know the the famous I, I love the famous quotes of uh um the the you know the mystic chords of our of memory and the better angels of our nature from uh, his first inaugural but then the the second inaugural you know with malice toward none charity toward all um and the whole gettysburg address thing of uh, the people by the people for the people. i love the gettysburg address the way it, it it begins you know talking about where we where we've been and it talks about in the middle section where we are, 
we're on a battlefield and we're, this is what we're doing. We're dedicating it. But then he goes into the future and this new birth of freedom and, and this, this, uh, this causes before us that these have perished here that gave, you know, the last full measure of devotion, but we've got a, we've got a bright future out there and, and, uh, we have to perpetuate this government of the people, by the people, for the people. Uh, I don't think we can go wrong with Lincoln. And it's a, the, the surprising thing there is people could read that. It's like a, it's like a couple of paragraphs. Like normally they yeah. talk for two hours when they give speeches, but that yeah. one, it's like a 20, 30 minute speech. So it's like, you could read that. Oh, it's, it's not even that it's long. Small. In fact, the, uh, the, the main order Lincoln was not the, the keynote speaker that day. It was mm. Edward Everett, who was the most well-known orator, uh, of the day. And they just kind of invited Lincoln as a, you know, we better, we're dedicating the cemetery. We better invite the president, you know? And, uh, uh, Everett went on for like two and a half hours and Lincoln got up there for like, it was only like two and a half minutes. And, wow. and he thought he had failed as a, as a speech. Um, but, uh, Everett sent him a letter after that, uh, a note that, that said, I wish I'd come as close to the central meaning of the occasion in two and a half hours as you did in two and a half minutes, you know? So, uh, it's a great, great speech, great speech. And then, um, is there one, just as a bonus question before we end, is there one spot to go to keep up to date with all your work? Because I think you're working on biography right now. Uh, I, I have, I've got a biography. It's kind of a semi-biography of Albert Sidney Johnston, um, mm. the Confederate commander at Shiloh. Uh, that'll be out later this year. And then I'm doing continual Vicksburg um, volumes and so on. I don't, I don't have a, a web page or I don't do um, Instagram <coughs> tweet chat or, or any of that stuff. Um, so I probably just the Amazon, you know, look up okay. uh, like one of my books and then go to the author link or, or whatever, but even Amazon, they get mixed up and don't have all of them, you know, but they'll have the, the majority of them. So probably the best place. Right. Thank you for joining us today with the learn with Lowell show. Check us out. Learn with anywhere podcast can be found. Subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. That's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming, and I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about, and you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day.